to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I'm Leah Heigl and I'm here with my co-host Aidan Muir and today we'll be talking about performance nutrition around the menstrual cycle. So this is definitely a topic I've become a little more interested as of late. I was kind of like almost forced into researching it to do a certain um, uh, event, but I actually found that it was really interesting and I'd wish I'd probably looked into it a little bit sooner. Um, So it's become a pretty popular discussion just in the world of sport, which I think is pretty cool considering that women in sport often get looked over and generally people with a menstrual cycle, like that's not often considered. Um, The issue with this topic and discussing it is there does seem to be a lack of research just in female athletes, female sports nutrition it's just not something that is researched that often. It is more based on male populations. And a lot of the reasoning behind that is that the menstrual cycle is really complex. So it's taking this already complex thing that uh, researchers are trying to investigate and then adding a whole other layer of complexity on it that is the menstrual cycle, which I have to say just generally, we probably don't know enough about outside of sports. So then to add it in, to sports nutrition and sports performance is a whole other ball game. So the question we're going to try to answer today is, can we provide general recommendations around the menstrual cycle for sports nutrition with the current data that we have? Yeah, so I'm going to start with something that's quite boring. So if you skip ahead a few minutes, like if, if this bores you <laughs> and you skip ahead, I, I'm okay with that, that's fair. But I'm gonna start with something a little less boring, then get to the more boring part. So like. The slightly less boring part is like, what is a typical menstrual cycle? So like the typical quote unquote, or the idealized menstrual cycle is 28 days, but it's obviously not 28 days. Like it's 24 to 32 days is like a standard typical menstrual cycle. But then we've got the issue of abnormal menstrual cycles. What if it's longer? What if it's shorter? What if there is no cycle? Um, And there's differences between women but there's also differences in the same woman as in somebody like 10 months of the year might have like a 24 to 32 kind of day cycle. And then two months they might not like that's why it's so complex. And this is also why it's so hard for people to study, let alone understand. And I I've read a lot about this topic and every time I feel like I know stuff, I get humbled because it's like, (laughs) there's like everybody talks about it based on this ideal idealized cycle to make it simpler to understand but the more variables you chuck in, the more you're like, oh, I could dedicate my career to this and I still wouldn't know mm-hmm. that much. And the same thing as all the hormones and everything like that, which is why as we talk about this, it's going to be a simplified version of it, but there's also individual variation, everything like that. So that's the preface. The boring bit is basically going to be pretty much reading from a textbook, but you kind of need to know this as the foundation for everything else we're going to talk about. So there are three phases of the menstrual cycle. Although you could even define those differently, which adds a layer of complexity. But if we're going to go with those three phases, we're going to go with the follicular phase, the ovulatory phase, and the luteal phase, even though technically there's overlap. So the follicular phase occurs at the start of menstruation. So basically, start of your period, start of follicular phase. And that lasts up until ovulation. And during this phase, estrogen and progesterone levels are low, And this lasts for about half the menstrual cycle. So based on that idealized cycle, around 14 days. The middle phase is the ovulatory phase. And this is where the egg is released from the ovary. And during this time, estrogen levels are high, but progesterone remains low. 
Ovulation is just one day of the whole menstrual cycle, but it's associated hormonal changes that last for around three days. And then the third phase is the luteal phase. Technically, this could be split up into early, mid, late luteal phase, but we're just going to call it one phase. And here, estrogen remains relatively high, but progesterone also increases until both levels fall off, leading back to the start of menstruation once again. If you lay this out on a chart, it gets even more complex because there's like crisscrossing between the two hormones. And why I talk about this whole thing like being quite a humbling experience is like even that just thing that I was talked about, that took me so long to be able to like nail. And like, even though I did quite literally just kind of read that from a textbook, like I can verbalize that without that, but it took me so long to get to the point that I could verbalize that. That's just two hormones. Like that I'm really focusing on estrogen That's and progesterone. simplified. Yeah. And like, I don't think I'm dumb. <laughs> like I, it, it takes a bit of time. And then like, what about like follicle stimulating hormones? Like what about all these other ones? Like we're not even going to yeah. really touch on that because it's such a complex thing. And this is actually a factor in that whole research thing we just talked about being like if you wanted to do research on the menstrual cycle you would have to know about this and part of the issue we're really coming across is that's like we want to know about the menstrual cycle and sports performance so the people who are researching this need to know sports performance Mm -hmm. and they need to know the menstrual cycle yeah how many people have that crossover (laughs) yes exactly so it's like every study on people on, on women with a menstrual cycle we can't expect everybody to know the ins and outs on every single detail and that's that's part of why there's a bit of a gap as well yeah. So an important question to frame that this discussion moving forward is like, does performance even change around the menstrual cycle? So is there a general change in athletic performance? Because if performance actually doesn't change around the menstrual cycle, is there really a need to formulate different nutrition approaches around it? Probably not. But if there is a change, is there a way then we can go about mitigating those changes or drops in performance through nutrition? So it's kind of the question we're trying to answer. So there's two blocks of research I kind of want to talk about. And the first one is perceived change. So when athletes are asked about their performance and their cycle, many believe their performance does fluctuate throughout the cycle. So in one study, there was a large proportion of the participants that felt that this was the case. So 50 and 71% of participants reported feeling their performance in training and competition respectively was impaired in certain menstrual cycle phases. So athletes most commonly perceived performance to be negatively affected in the early follicular phase and late luteal phases. So going back to what we were talking about, this is kind of leading up to and during menstruation which I think if you're an athlete with a menstrual cycle, you can totally relate to this just before you get your period and during your period. Yeah, most people don't feel at optimal performance because it's just quite an uncomfortable time. But then when we look at objective changes, so when we're actually measuring performance around the menstrual cycle, it does say something pretty similar, but it does differ a little bit. So There's one systematic review that was really quite interesting, and they looked at 35 different research articles that looked at sports performance over the menstrual cycle and how things changed. And 20 out of the 35 studies actually found that there wasn't any change across the menstrual cycle in actual athletic performance. So no significant difference, which is pretty interesting because I think that that's a majority of the studies found that there was nothing there. Um, But that does leave that 15 of those studies that did find a difference. 
absolutely worth talking about. So there are a few different things that came up in these different studies. So the key takeaways for me um, was one, so for anaerobic performance, one study found that sprint performance was better in the mid-luteal phase. So after ovulation, like a week after ovulation, about a week prior to the menses or the period, that's when performance seemed to be at its optimal peak. Um, for aerobic performance, intermittent endurance performance appeared to be more affected by the menstrual cycle than continuous endurance work. Um, but generally looking at the studies, there were all different kinds of effects at different kinds, like different parts of the menstrual cycle. There was no one clear like effect it had at a certain time. So I found that quite interesting that there was quite a mix of results. Um, something that I guess matters to me is talking to uh, talking about muscular strength and how that might change. So it does appear that muscular strength is the most affected by the menstrual cycle. And the review found that trends suggest that strength was lower in the early follicular phase. So during menstruation um, compared to the late luteal phase, which is before menstruation um, and generally increased during ovulation. Um, and I actually have clients that do cite this, that they're like, yeah, I know, like they track their cycle and they know when they're ovulating and prior to like their menstrual cycle, like a week out, that's actually when they feel their best. Um, and then they've got, they lead into their menstrual cycle and feel all those PMS-like symptoms and then maybe don't feel so great. So it is something that I tend to see in practice. So it's really interesting to see that, you know, me working with powerlifters and having that experience is kind of reflected in the research. Um, there is a relationship kind of generally between muscular strength and estrogen. So it does make sense when estrogen is higher that potentially there's more muscular strength being shown during that part of the menstrual cycle. Um, so there, there are objective changes that potentially do happen across the menstrual cycle when we're talking about sports performance. But let's get into how nutrition can actually kind of be part of this discussion. Yeah, I actually, I, I do want to stick with the performance bit for a second. Okay. Because like, I do find that research really interesting. Like, because it, it's like, we can hear really smart people talk about mechanisms and then also use case studies as well and be like, this is what mm -hmm. I see or whatever. And it's interesting seeing like research is not perfect, but it's cool seeing that mix, if that makes sense. And then also yeah. like the thing you talked about there, like, because I've heard a lot of people with like make some claims that like, oh, that makes sense. But like, um, for example, with the lifting thing, like I've heard there's other countries with Olympic weightlifting who program based on the menstrual cycle, mm. as in like their deload week lines up with the week where they're likely to be less coordinated or less strong or less whatever. And their like heaviest week lines up with that. Um, sure. Yeah. That like, what was it? The late luteal phase. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then there's the other thing like in women's sport, which is a massive, massive complication, but like four times more ACL tears happening during one week of the cycle than other weeks. That's interesting. That's fascinating. It's, it's related to how estrogen fits in. Like that's another complex topic, but it's to do with, um, structures made of collagen potentially being weaker during certain times and then also factoring in changes in coordination and everything like that. Like there's so many areas where this can make a massive difference, but it's interesting seeing like how, how can we research this? How can we study this? How has it been done? Um, it's a complex topic. <laughs> Super complex. Can totally see why researchers are like, how do we even approach this? Because yeah. it's even looking at the research, I was like, oh my gosh, what a mess. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, <laughs> and yeah, like it's so clear that like when you hear smart people talk, there's like some things that seem that seem quite obvious, 
But then it's like, how did 20 out of 35 not n- notice like any of these sure things? And then it, that leads to the question being like, is that the thing that the mechanism was proposed doesn't really matter that much or the thing that people latch onto doesn't matter that much or is the study overlooking this or is like... Yeah, something that like was criticised is that a lot of these studies were comparing a very specific like a very specific part of the menstrual cycle to another specific part. Yeah. Like were they were they comparing the right parts of the menstrual yeah. cycle to understand uh, a performance change? And obviously we haven't investigated it to its full extent. So there's just so much we don't know. Yeah, so, yeah. so complex. And now going to the nutrition thing, probably the topic that I think is my, my biggest place of value to add to a certain degree is the question of like, do you need more calories at certain parts of the cycle? This is the question I've thought the most around because it's probably the most thing I, I talk about in practice. And there's a few ways of looking at it. So one thing is people know that there's probably a certain time of their cycle that they may or may not be hungrier. Some people experience this more than others. Um, one of the pieces of, in, of research that's interesting or even just like a theoretical thing that's interesting as well is that resting energy expenditure seems to be increased during the luteal phase. So that's that last phase, or you could say it's as much as 14 days leading up to menstruation. Um, it's the last half of the cycle based on that idealised cycle. Um, and there's a pretty big range that people talk about or that studies show or whatever. Um, one study estimated the change in resting energy expenditure to be an 8 to 16% increase in resting energy expenditure. I've seen other smart people talk about anywhere from 90 to a 500 calorie increase in energy expenditure. Um, I personally use the number 100 to 300, but it's like this, this, this is a big range that people talk yeah. about. And there was a study that you actually added into our show notes, like the 2020 meta-analysis on this topic showing us a bit of a mixed bag, like 50-50 split, some showing a small increase, others not showing a small increase. And this is why we talk about mechanisms being like, well, you hear somebody talk and they say that 100 to 300 sounds clear cut. You look at the research, how much does this matter? It's hard It's hard to tell. Um, but I like to chuck that out there being like, that could be a factor. But another factor is on average, most people seem to eat more than that during that phase, the 100 to 300 calorie number I just talked about. Um, Once again, it's hard to measure. The number that I go with is most people on average seem to increase their intake by 300 to 500. So it's like, do you actually need to game plan for this? Do you need to to adjust things based on that? That's a complex topic which I'll talk about as well. Um, But then there's the individual nature, which is, I guess, what I'll get into, where it's like, I have met people who report eating about 1,000 calories extra for a certain phase of the cycle, Others who do not notice any difference. It's a thousand calories per day. Per extra. day extra. Per day extra. Yeah, damn. Almost like not quite binge eating wouldn't fit necessarily the category, but it's like they just love chocolate. <laughs> like sure, yeah, it's like cravings and stuff. Yeah, like really strong cravings. And then there's the aspect of how long does this go for? Like, is it the entire luteal phase? Is it like if I had to go based off of my experience, what I am seeing is it's typically like a I don't know, like a five day period or something like that. But that's individual. Some people it's longer, some people it's shorter, and everything like that. And my proposed solution that I have for people is potentially just adding an extra 300 calories for one week or five days or whatever it is, like working with that person, being like, how long should we add it? Adding an extra 300 calories to their diet in the form of even more carbs, maybe in chocolate, maybe in whatever. It doesn't, like, there's so many ways we can go about it. And then seeing if that helps them. Because mm-hmm. this, this problem or this proposed problem raises even more questions, being like, what if people do struggle with overeating um, in relation to their goals during five, a five-day period, 
um, leading up to menstruation. For example, what if they do struggle with that? Does adding 300 calories actually solve that? Does it actually help them? And when you hear some, some people talk about it, it makes it seem like it, it's so logical and it makes so much sense. From my experience, what I have found, keeping in mind that I obviously like guide people, like some people are just going to agree with what I say or whatever. Like that's, <laughs> that's obviously a factor that I do not want to overlook. But like I probably try it with like 50% of my female clients who like notice this problem, maybe a little bit less than that I'll try it with. And 10 to 20% seems like the best decision they have ever made. And then there's probably like, 80% or like who just do not know it just didn't change anything yeah. it just didn't do anything and like I know these numbers don't add up perfectly but like it doesn't matter like like 10% or whatever it made things worse it was like it gave them quote-unquote permission to go crazy or whatever sure. so it's like they say I put chocolate in their meal plan or whatever then putting the chocolate in the meal plan made them eat more than they would have. It's a gateway to yeah, just eating gateway. more and more, yeah. And, like, that's a very long way of saying this is individual, but I don't think it's, like, I don't want it to be taken as this thing being, like, oh, you can just do whatever. Like, I'm just, like, it's just an idea. <laughs> it's an idea that could help. <laughs> yeah, and I, in my experience working with people, I found that for some athletes, adding extra calories in at a certain point makes sense. It makes them feel better. They're hungrier, so it's just matching those hunger cues. They're a bit more maybe fatigued in that time. Sometimes it just makes sense and it doesn't we don't need a mechanism all the time. If it yeah. makes the athlete feel better, they're performing better, probably worth doing. Yeah. And I suppose like adding one more layer of complexity, but like the whole concept of like, what if somebody feels better at certain phases of their cycle? Like we just talked about the energy expenditure, mm-hmm. or I just talked about energy expenditure in relation to these processes. But what if somebody feels better and they do more movement during a time that they feel better? Or what if there's a phase where, yeah, like that adds another thing into it being like, we can't just be like, oh, it's 100 to 300 calories or whatever, more energy expenditure here because... It's not as clear cut as that. We're just talking averages. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Um, So another thing that gets thrown around a lot is changing uh, your intake of fats, carbs and protein around your menstrual cycle. Um, So we're just going to talk about like, is there any merit to that? Should we do that? What's the research behind it? Um, so I do find this this point is probably one of the most often raised outside of the caloric intake. But generally, we know that at certain points in your cycle, your body oxidizes or burns uh, less of certain fuel sources and more of others. So during the follicular phase, the start of your menstrual cycle where you your period and the week or so after, we know that fat and protein oxidation are reduced and carbohydrate oxidation is actually increased. And then it's vice versa in the luteal phase after ovulation. It's not really clear how those changes in fuel oxidation and what source your body prefers to use actually changes performance. Like we talked about performance a lot at the start, but it's not really clear how they line up. And I spent hours trying to make some kind of connections and connect the dots between this stuff and the findings in the performance stuff. And I just, I couldn't do it. Like yeah. there's just no clear links. I, I really struggled to find something. Like not naming names here, but there is a TED talk on this on this topic where somebody does a N equals one case study. Like they just talked about themselves and their own mm-hmm. experience where they did a test um, a two hour run and they measured their fat and oxidation kind of levels. And the first time they did it, they got great results in terms of both their speed, but then it was just like they were burning a lot more fat. And then a week later, they did the test and it was really, really, really hard for the last hour and a half and their body was not as efficiently burning fat. And that was the kind of thing being like, well, yeah, we oxidize different rates and everything like that during different parts of the cycle. 
But that's the interesting thing where it's like that N equals one kind of thing. Where yeah. it's like, wouldn't it make sense that that stuff would show up in the larger scale research, in the research. more easily? Yeah. yeah. That's where it's a, like you can hear certain stuff like that and you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Totally. But yeah. And if that did actually happen on a large scale, that would have huge implications for people in terms of what if they want to run a marathon or something like that 100%. on a certain day. Do they want to pick a date that lines up with their cycle? <laughs> like, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, obviously that's not usually, I, like, you're not picking the date yeah. when you're running a marathon. Um, so a lot of the times it's like uh, you can't do much about where your events fall anyway. But I just think that there is often even, like, this mismatch between this research and utilisation of different sources and the performance stuff, and it's just such a mixed bag. But we'll go over the two recommendations that people often make. Um, this was uh, this is actually pulled from the research as well. So this is researchers saying, based on what we found, we think this. Um, so one of them is you should have more carbs in the mid-luteal phase. So the reasoning behind this is because estrogen is high in this phase, it can inhibit the utilization of your glycogen stores. So the carbohydrates you store in your muscle and your liver. And then maybe consuming more carbs during this time could be beneficial for like high intensity activity where you are really wanting to be, have access to those glycogen stores and carbohydrates as like the most efficient fuel source. Um, but that's, it's, it's just a theory. Like we've not had any research showing that this makes a bit, a big difference or a difference at all. It's just a theory. And I mean, you could try it if you want to see if it works for you individually. Not against that, but nothing set in stone for that one. The second is we should increase protein in the luteal phase. So that's after ovulation. And the reasoning behind this is that progesterone increases protein catabolism. So protein breakdown, um, which may be a factor to consider in this phase. And then some researchers just suggest that there is a potential need for increased protein intake because there is more protein breakdown. Uh, I generally think that looking at this, the recommendations for protein intake in sport, I think we have it fairly well yeah. covered. I wouldn't say that maybe there's an argument for going on like the mid to high end of that range or something rather than the lower end at this time. But I just say the guidelines we currently have probably cover this to an, enough of a degree. Yeah, I think that claim's murky because I think it's accurate and it's true, but it mm. is also just like, if you're above, say, that 1.6 gram per kilogram per body yeah. weight kind of target, you're meeting the amount needed all cycle. And you could just make an argument yeah. that maybe you need less at other times of the cycle, but then that's adding True. a layer of complexity. And it could just be simple and just have, like, do this amount all cycle covers all needs. Like, yeah. maybe it matters more if you have a lower protein intake habitually at other times of the cycle. Yeah, I think changing your protein intake, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm just like... Yeah. Have enough that meets like recommendations for your sport and what your goals are and then just stick to that all yeah. cycle and that will be covered. But I think there's maybe some merit to kind of potentially changing fat and carbs and how that makes up your calorie intake. But I would say that it's more like follow the sports nutrition guidelines for carbs, fats and protein intake and then adjust based on how you feel and that individual athlete. So once again, we come back to the there's all this kind of research and these mechanisms and theories, but it all comes down to individualization for yeah. each athlete. 
So the next thing I want to talk about, I want to be really brief because I want to hear the next thing you're going to talk about. I think it's more interesting than this and we don't have that much time. But the next thing is um, fluid retention slash weight across the menstrual cycle. I'm just going to start with the obvious. Obviously, it changes. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, their weight changes over the course of the cycle. Estrogen equals increased, increased fluid retention. Progesterone decreases fluid retention. You can see how this is going to change stuff. But very simply, things change over the course of the cycle. The part you might be, or you're going to be talking about is like, how could this play a role for weight-making athletes? Because that's a <laughs> complex topic. Yeah. Um, general population, keeping it super simple, I think if you're going for a fat loss phase or whatever, taking monthly averages is really important. Because if you don't do that, say you just like compare week on week or day on day, it's going to be very skewed by these water changes that are going to happen every cycle and don't influence your fat loss in any way, shape or form. So there is an excellent uh, review article that came out in 2021 that is called Nutritional Considerations for Female Athletes in Weight Category Sports. And this kind of grabbed my attention right away as like something that I would be interested in. So um, I found it a very interesting read. So the authors, one of them was the fight dietitian. Uh, So he is and where is he based? Brisbane? He's Brisbane, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was one of the authors amongst a few other people. Uh, they did discuss the, the fluid retention and weight component of all this. But a couple of things they did touch on that I found super interesting. It's not going to be interesting to everybody or applicable to everybody. Um, but they brought up the fact that in terms of water retention at certain points of the cycle, like when water retention is really high can be up to an extra two liters. Um, is water loading actually going to be unsafe for these female athletes in this part of the cycle? Like, is there a greater chance of them to suffer from hyponutremia, which is basically when blood sodium levels get too low? And I thought from a mechanistic point of view, like that kind of makes sense to me. But then I'm like, Oh, we can, we do water loading with so many uh, female athletes that are probably at this point in their cycle and it doesn't seem to be an issue. But I'm like, eh, something to consider. Very interesting. Um, something else they also brought up in terms of uh, a weight cutting and weight making sports is that your core temperature at certain parts of your menstrual cycle is increased by about 0.3 to 0.7 degrees Celsius. Um, So that's in the luteal phase where progesterone is high in comparison to the follicular phase where it's low. Um, And they asserted that there's a potential increase in hypothermia risk when it comes to using active or passive sweating methods. So this is things like using saunas and hot baths and, and things like that to make weight. So like this idea of, of, of overheating the body and causing it a lot of stress and p- particularly being more dangerous at that point in the cycle. Again, they didn't kind of like, there's no research on this and no kind of case studies that they cited, but they work a lot in this weight-making space uh, and kind of pioneers in this space. So I think it's really interesting that they'd mentioned that and uh, something to look into, I guess, something to consider. Um, and something that I kind of thought of from a sports nutrition perspective is the water retention that we see in the late luteal phase. Could this be like a natural form of hyperhydration? Like if if you're going into event, like we, we do hyperhydration with some athletes in events where they're endurance events and they won't have access to fluids or potentially they just can't take in enough fluids and kind of stomach that to remain hydrated. So we'll start them at the very, like the start of the event 
overhydrated, whether that's using something like glycerol or just like a lot of sodium and, and fluids and water them up, is potentially kind of being in this part of your cycle, is it like a natural way of, of being extra hydrated and having like two more liters, like, like you're some kind of camel? <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of an interesting point, although I think maybe some athletes would feel like this weighs them down more so than anything. So they're just kind of a, a bucket of other considerations that could be made around the menstrual cycle and sports nutrition, although probably not interesting to everyone. I'm not going to go into a lot about the final consideration, but it's hormonal contraception. The, the only thing I can say about that is if the other stuff is a mess and confusing, this is way worse, like a thousand times worse. We have no idea how hormonal contraception really plays a role in any of this. Like we're scratching the surface of studying sports performance with an unaffected menstrual cycle, let alone one that's affected by hormonal contraception. Yeah, that's part of the humbling aspect for me that I was kind of referring to. Like every time I think I know something, then I'm like, oh, well, what about this? Like, like in terms of like, then with hormonal contraception, it's not just one thing. It's so many things. And I'm like, I've put so many hours into learning about like an idealized menstrual cycle, let alone like all these other variables. It's, it's yeah, there's so many factors. And then that goes into that research perspective of like, it's almost like you've got to do all these studies on men. Like that's the simple one, so to speak. Mm. Then you've got to study women separately. But then you also have to study them during different phases of their menstrual cycle to see what happens there and compare those phases to each yeah. other. And then you've got to study each form of hormonal contraception individually. Which there is many. Which there is many. And you can see why when you say we're barely scratching a surface, it's like, well, we actually are. Like a lot of times I'm like, I don't want to underplay what we know. Like we know a lot of stuff, but I'm like, oh, like <laughs> there are so many more levels to this and what we could potentially know down the line. A thousand percent. Um, yeah. And so one of the things that is a bit of a no-brainer is that nutrition should be individualized. That's a very clear thing. That goes without saying, and that plays a big role in this thing. Um, I'm a bit of a, pro a proponent for tracking your period and getting familiar with how you feel. I often question my thoughts on that in terms of the whole like placebo, nocebo effect. Like if, if you um, use an app like Flow or something like that, and like, I don't use Flow obviously, so I don't know what it says, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like I, I want to know as much as I can. And like, my understanding is it like sometimes tells you stuff like you may feel bloated today or you may feel tired mm. today or you might like, does that then like feed into you feeling less? Like that's one downside I can potentially see, but I also see the potential upside as huge in terms of getting familiar with these kind of things, getting familiar with how you feel, how you perform, how hungry you are, what is your mood like? I think it can be very, very beneficial. Um, and the last kind of summary point, I guess, is we can't really give generalised recommendations across the board in terms of this is what you should do at this phase of the menstrual cycle or anything like that, partly because everybody's different, partly because of that lack of research, partly because of that kind of mechanism thing being like it's obviously not that simple. And then the, like another additional layer of it being like, well, what if we had the perfect recommendations? Does that still align with what people want to do at an individual level? Do they want to actually do that individual recommendation? Or is that another barrier as well in terms of um, just personal preference as well? Yeah, like, are you going to be changing your nutrition three times a month based on your menstrual cycle? Yeah. Like, that seems like a, 
a lot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously a huge topic, but hopefully we've covered it enough for you to feel somewhat informed. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll wrap up. This has been episode 58 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. If you could leave a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated. But otherwise, thanks for tuning in. Oh, 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 o